You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Feltbar Ventures, an incubator studio that transforms early stage media properties into multimedia entertainment franchises. Their team is passionate about transforming a creator's vision into reality and commercial success. To learn more, visit feldsparventures.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Kurt Marvis, co-founder and president at The Q. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. Great to be here. Excited to have you. So when someone asks you what you do, what do you say? As little as possible. No. <laughs> I Well, what I do at The Q is I've had a lot of my own businesses over the years, so I'm really kind of responsible, I guess, for running the business, if you will. And that's every aspect of it that one can imagine. So that's everything from the sort of operational COO type functions. Uh, Not that that's particularly what I'm thrilled to do, but I just kind of know how to do it because I've had my own companies through financial stuff, raising money, figuring out budgets, et cetera, et cetera. And then also kind of the strategy and creative vision for the business. So I'm not really involved on a day-to-day basis in what I would call the tactical execution of anything that we're doing. So I'd say it's sort of my job on a day-to-day basis to deal with how are we going to run the business successfully, how are we going to grow the business successfully, uh, and how are we going to keep from going out of business successfully. And how did you initially make your way into media and entertainment? I started actually wanting to be a photojournalist for National Geographic when I was a little kid. My parents traveled a lot, and I always grew up with kind of this zest for travel and exploration of the world, which was very lucky. I grew up in San Diego, California, but always from the time I can remember, my dad was from New York. And so when I was like three years old, I remember getting on an airplane and flying to New York City, which we did every summer. And we vacationed back then long before Airbnb or anything of that nature, internet or any of that. There were two summers when I think I was nine years old and 12 years old that my mom and dad rented a house on the beach in Hawaii for a month. And we went and lived in Hawaii for a month for a summer. So it was that kind of thing. thing. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it was that kind of thing that, you know, just people really didn't do that stuff back then. That was considered extremely exotic travel. So I always had that kind of passion for traveling. And that really led to how I got involved in originally photography. And then that led to super eight cameras and 16 millimeter cameras and got into filmmaking, et cetera, at a very young age. I think I got my first 35 millimeter camera for my 12th birthday and started developing my own pictures, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that started my interest in media. And my career originally started in kind of documentary, wildlife, travel type filmmaking, and then eventually grew out of there. So I've been doing this a long time. And you produced, shot, and sold a television documentary about California at MIP, all when you were just 17, right? Making you at the time the youngest producer to sell his own program. Yeah, I actually went back to MIP when we started the queue. Let's see, that was about three years ago. So it was literally, it was it was 40 years after I had originally been there. And I brought my original name tag from when I was 17 years old, which at that time was handwritten for MIP. And that was that grew out of my early documentary and sort of filmmaking experience. My brother and I made a, a film on the state of California. We brought it to MIP and we sold it there which then funded my adventures to try to make a film while I was there in Europe, but that didn't really pan out the way I wanted. And I ultimately, you know, I had to come home. So have you always kind of considered yourself an entrepreneur? Yeah, I've always been. It's funny. I was going through a box just this last weekend of old school stuff and, you know, my pictures and report cards from when I was in elementary school. I'm a bit of a pack rat. I was looking at my, I think it was my fourth grade report card and the teacher was talking about, uh, how I enjoyed doing independent study projects and doing all this research and finding out, you know, about new things and building things myself, etc. And I've always said for years now that the filmmaking process, which is basically or the content creation process, if you want to get really generic, it's the concept of taking an idea assembling a group of people because typically you need more than just yourself to do it. It's not like being a painter in the film process. It's collaborative and you have to get a lot of people to, to put it together. And there are a lot of creative people that have different ideas, different visions, etc. And trying to get them to kind of understand what that vision is, even in a more difficult format than say building a home where you create a blueprint and it's very specific and a board has to be a certain length. If you're lighting something on a set, 
there's a thousand ways to light that set. And so it's coming to all that agreement with a group of creative people. And at the end of the process, ending up with something that resembles what the original idea is. I always loved that process. So I always loved working with those kind of people, etc. I've always said that building a company is almost identical to that. You start with an idea. Typically, it's your idea, maybe shared with a very small group of people. You assemble a large group of smart and talented and people who all have their own ideas about how to manifest that idea for a company into something. And you hope at the end of the process, not only that it's been successful, but that it looks something like what the original idea is. And so I look at the last maybe... 20 years or so of my career after I kind of got out of the very, very specific process of filmmaking, if you will, and more into the process of building businesses. And I see it almost identical. And so I think what I really enjoy is the concept uh, or the process rather of taking an idea and seeing if you can actually make it happen. Let's talk about some of your entrepreneurial endeavors, right? From 1984 to 1994, you co-founded and served as CEO of the company, which was a production business that created over 200 music videos, concerts, home videos, commercial footage. Was that kind of your first endeavor in launching a business? Before that happened, I worked for a company called Bill Bird Productions. And Bill Bird Productions was a family-owned documentary, primarily wildlife, travel adventure, a production company that was located on La Brea, right near the corner of La Brea and Olympic here in LA. I was very, very uh, energetic and enthused. It was, this was a family business, and it's probably where I kind of got my first experience of being in an operation where you ate what you killed, so to speak. So, I mean, you had to go out and you had to pitch ideas to networks or wherever. You had to land the project. Then you had to produce it for the money. And I got involved in all of that very, very early on. And it was a great training ground for me to sort of learn how to run run a business. And what happened was we were producing some shows for actually Dick Clark Productions and NBC. We were doing some stuff for the Disney Channel, which had recently launched uh, a series called New Animal World. And one day, one of my buddies, I was in my mid-20s, one of my buddies who was one of my cameramen called me and said, hey, I've, I've got a job to shoot a music video for that new channel MTV. And MTV had already been around for about a year and a half, and it was really starting to blow up at that point. I mean, literally, everybody was starting to talk about this new channel MTV. And it was a new video for this young blonde-haired singer on Warner Brothers named Madonna. The guy who sort of co-directed that and co-shot it, he and I hit it off. We became partners. His name's Wayne Isham. He's one of the most famous and iconic directors in the history of MTV. And Wayne and I became partners. That's how we started. We started a company that was originally called The New Company because we had to incorporate. And when you incorporate a new business, you call it NewCo. And we had to literally do it. It was like a Friday night. We're on with the lawyers. And what can we call this new company? And we said, well, is there a company called The New Company in California? We can incorporate it and just call it The New Company. And that became the name of our subsidiary business that we did music videos through. And then later, he and I left Bill Bird Productions, where we had started this and started our own business. And they wouldn't sell us the name. So we just changed it to the company. So the name of our company during all those years was known as the company. So let's also talk about Cinema Now. You co-founded Cinema Now in June 1999 and served as its CEO until its acquisition in March 2008. For much of the company's life, you were battling against MovieLink, right? A joint venture between Paramount, Sony, MGM, Universal, and Warner Brothers. Tell us how you go up against a big heavyweight like that. Well, what's funny is the story of Cinema Now actually started slightly before that when a guy that most of... Most of your listeners will have heard of named Mark Cuban, who I met in 1997 when I was part of a CD-ROM venture uh, called Seventh Level. I was actually on stage with Bill Gates uh, for the launch of Windows 97, where we were presenting a new technology for what was then called an active desktop. It was a joint venture between our company, Seventh Level, uh, Bandai, the Japanese toy manufacturer, and Microsoft to launch a virtual desktop app. It wasn't called an app back then, whatever it was. It was called a Tamagotchi, and it was a little pet that lived on your desktop, and you fed it every day, et cetera. It was based on a very popular Bondi toy. Anyway, that long, diverted story, after we launched that and announced it and everything, I was. Uh, they had a big pavilion with all the different companies that were doing things, and 7th Level was the first one because it started with a number, and everything was alphabetical, and the company next to me was a company called AudioNet, and AudioNet was founded by a guy named Mark Cuban. 
And AudioNet was started as a company that Cuban was a huge sports fan back then. That's why he owns the Dallas Mavericks now. And he went to Duke and he wanted to listen to the home announcers of Duke basketball announce the Duke games, college basketball games. And so he used this new thing called the Internet to take the audio feed from the Duke local thing in North Carolina, whatever it is and be able to listen to it in Dallas, Texas, where he lived. And so that started this company called AudioNet. And AudioNet uh, became very big at, at retransmission of local college broadcast uh, of football, basketball, etc. Later, he changed the name to Broadcast.com and took the company public. And that was during the dot-com heydays. It was probably 98 going into 99, probably, probably 98. And suddenly Broadcast.com is a $2 billion business. So Cuban goes around to all the studios and uh, what everybody's forgotten is at that time, everybody thought broadband delivery over the internet was going to be ubiquitous by like 2001 or two. And so he went around all the major studios trying to get uh, them to give them to license their movies for his new company called broadcast.com. And they all said, you know, no, we're not going to do that. Go away. So he went to all the independent studios in town. One of those was a company called uh, Trimark Pictures. And Trimark Pictures was a small independent movie studio that primarily did direct-to-video and home video uh, projects, but occasionally they did a feature. One of their most famous films to this day is a a horror film called Leprechaun. And at any rate, Mark Cuban and Mark Amin, the head of Trimark, hit it off, and they did a stock swap. And when they announced the stock swap, both of their stocks went way up over the licensing of 100 movies you've never heard of to Broadcast.com. Well, later, uh, about four months later, uh, Broadcast.com got bought by Yahoo for $5.4 billion. Who knows how much of that was for the movie side of it? It was a big piece of it. It was probably worth at least a billion dollars of that purchase was the promise of Broadcast.com delivering broadband movies. And Yahoo never did anything with it. None of those films ever saw the light of day and Mark Cuban became a billionaire and the rest is history. The funny part was, is in June of 99, when we launched Cinema Now, we got an email from Mark Cuban saying, I can't believe you guys are launching a competing service to broadcast.com. We're going to destroy you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because at that time... It was a new thing. Movie Link actually came later. The Movie Link was originally called MovieFly, but there was another company that existed at that time called Entertainer. And Entertainer was started by a guy named Jonathan Taplin, who's now a professor at USC. But when we started uh, Cinema Now, it actually wasn't Movie Link that was the problem for us. It was Broadcast.com. It wasn't even just Broadcast.com. It was that everybody talked about short-form video content. This is what's kind of ironic today, is at that time, everyone thought that when I was raising money for Cinema Now, they were like, why would people are never going to watch movies on computers? People are never going to watch movies delivered over the internet they're going to watch short form content on computers and that's why Adam Films and a bunch of other films iFilm and a bunch of other companies were raising literally tens of millions of dollars and my original my first raise for Cinema Now was for like two and a half million bucks and that was a struggle and because no one believed that that feature length films would be delivered over anything other than television and so then Movie Link came out around I think 2001 or 2002 and then the market had crashed. So there was kind of this big lag period from about 2002 to 2005 when no one really thought, in fact, there were, I'll never forget an article that I read at that time that said the internet was a fad and it's going to die out. And uh, that's how bad the the crash was when the, the dot bomb, you know, implosion happened in, I still remember it. It was in spring, April of, 2000 and it lasted for about four years. How did that impact your business at the time? It was really, really difficult. We ended up surviving. I mean, the joke actually back then was that we should have named the company Cinema Now with an S. So it should have been Cinema Now or Skinema Now was the other joke. Because one of the things that we did, which kind of happened by default, I can't say we did it by design was we also, adult content was the first thing that people started streaming. Adult content in the very early days of the internet, it was all pictures and images. So adult sites became the first sites that were showing full color pictures on the internet. And then later they started to get into uh, video. So you could download an adult video and that became a big business for them. 
And so we licensed from, I don't remember the name of the company, it doesn't matter, but we licensed a film called Topless Volleyball. And it was exactly what it sounded like. It was topless <laughs> women playing volleyball. And we put it up on Cinema Now, and it overnight became the most viewed film on the site. Wow. And so we kind of went, huh, that's interesting. Let's see if we can license a few more of those movies. And they were kind of like soft porn. So we put a few of those up, and immediately they were the most viewed films. And so that started a trend, which you can imagine where that grew. I ultimately ended up doing a a licensing deal with a company called Vivid, which is one of the most famous adult entertainment providers. And Vivid was who we used to kind of source all of our adult content. But it's funny, we had a, on the on the site, you could see, you know, action, comedy, you know, family, animation, whatever on the subject categories. At the very bottom, it said, uh, after dark. <laughs> and after dark was always the most clicked on button. Of wow, that even though it wasn't to. at the top. No, no, at the, bottom, the very bottom was below the, the, below the fold even. Because our big fear back then was, will the studios, will the major studios license our films if we have adult content on there? And I basically went to the studios and I said, you have to license us your content because you license it to DirecTV and Comcast and Time Warner Cable and they have adult content. And so how can you say that you can't do it with us? And ultimately they bought that argument. And, and, and it wasn't just that. It was also that they all wanted to experiment in streaming. But it's funny, the, the first studio deal that I ever did was with MGM with a guy named Jason Spivak, who is now at Sony and one of the top guys in the home video group at Sony. He's a great guy. And Jason, he was looking for two titles that we could put up that weren't going to be, you know, too risky. And he says, okay, I found two titles for you. One is The Man in the Iron Mask. That's kind of the lesser title. I'm kind of going, okay. And one is a, is a fairly new picture. It's called What's the Worst That Can Happen with Martin Lawrence. And I'm like, you're joking, right? What's the worst that can happen is the name of the movie that you're giving me to start with. I go, I can already read the reviews. You know, it's like we've teed it up for them. Uh What's the worst that can happen? You can try to watch a movie online and it doesn't work. (laughs) And it was, we did that. That was such big news at that time. It was probably 2002, 2003. It was such huge news. It literally was on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, not the front page of the business section, the front page of the newspaper. There were many times I was on CNN and CNBC and all that stuff back in those days because we were where where we became kind of what we became known for is we were breaking ground all the time. And so where movie link was more conservative because they had to be because they were owned by the major studios. And so getting all the studios to agree about what they could or couldn't do, we would always jump ahead of them like electronic sell through. We were the first company to do electronic sell through the first company to allow, you know, streaming and downloading the first one to blah, 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 blah. So it was, it was an amazing experience and certainly kind of shocking to see where the world is today. Although, as I say all the time, it's 2016. We started that company 17 years ago. So it didn't really happen overnight. It actually was, it took a full decade. It wasn't until really 2008, 2009 when Netflix streaming really started to happen. So let's talk about that. What do you think made Netflix the breakout success that it is today? Why wasn't Cinema Now or Movie Link or any of the others that had gotten there first more successful in creating a subscription video on demand service? Well, I think there's, Two or three primary reasons. The first and most important reason is, is that they had a very large subscriber base. It's funny because it, it, people have literally forgotten that Netflix business was to deliver DVDs using the oh, yeah. U.S. Postal Service. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, 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 it's crazy when you think about it. I used to meet with Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos every CES trying to sell them cinema now. And there's a long story behind that that I won't go into now. But the first, and, first thing was is that when Netflix got into the streaming business... They had a massive, not like it is today, but they had a large subscriber base and revenue stream to be to be able to build off of. No one else, not Cinema Now, not Movie Link, was willing to dump that kind of money into starting a service. Even to this day, when I look at like a Hulu, people forget that Hulu started with a hundred million dollars. You know, that was a that's a sizable war chest from and all content the major and content. Yeah. And you really needed that kind of start to be able to get a leg up on people. The the one company that probably could have done that and failed miserably for a variety of reasons is Blockbuster. Blockbuster could have and should have been the Netflix of today. But the other thing that Netflix did is they stuck to their business model. 
It was very tempting, and a lot of the studios were trying to convince them to get into individual VOD and pay-per-view, et cetera. And I give them a lot of credit for saying, no, we're a subscription service. We're going to stay a subscription service. And you know, one of the other foot, footnotes and asterisks and anecdotes that everybody has also forgotten about Netflix is that they thought that those two businesses were going to be so different that everybody may have forgotten already that they started. They, tried to spin they, tried, it they, out, they, they spun it out, and it was called Quick Quick Flixes, I think. With the, it only lasted two weeks. That was part. It was one of the. They first were ridiculed ex- for yeah, it. Yeah, it was one of the first examples of social media making change in a company's business, and they got so ridiculed and so lambasted for doing that that they went back and named it all Netflix, and you know did that. But the reason they did that is because. At that time, the studios had different rights windows around what you could deliver as a physical disc on DVD by mail and what you could deliver digitally. Those were different rights. And so what would happen is, and a Netflix customer would go, they want to watch movie XYZ, they want to see Titanic. Well, they can only get Titanic by mail, but they can't get it delivered. And, and consumers didn't understand that. They don't know anything about the movie windowing business. And so Netflix, that had such a pristine customer service and value propositions with its customers, was suddenly inundated with all these complaints about, why can't I download this movie? And they started to have unhappy customers. And part of the whole Netflix thing was is their customer approval rating was, was super high. And so that's why they did the Quickster, or what I think it was called Quickster, whatever it was called, and then came back to do that. But it was a huge problem in the early going for Netflix of wrestling with that issue of where you could get a, a physical disc by mail, but you couldn't stream that movie. That's all, you know, long gone at this point. So I'm curious about your take on traditional theatrical and and television windows. Do you think that we're going to still see content windowed either by territory or across formats? Well, I mean, I think we've been seeing that disappear steadily for years now. I mean, even when I went to Lionsgate in 2008, we were still constantly wrestling with windows. And I don't mean windows Microsoft, I mean windows of, of release for films. There were sort of seminal moments over the last decade-ish where, in fact, I think Mark Cuban's company, Landmark Pictures, was one of the first to do it, to do day-and-date release of a theatrical release and a motion picture in theaters. One of the interesting drivers for change in that was actually piracy. Because what was happening is, is many, many years ago, two decades ago, motion pictures were released in the United States first, and then they worked their way out around the world. And... Two things happened. One was half of the box office of most motion pictures became overseas box office. That's even changing more dramatically now with China. So the concept was you put the movie out. This is all pre-internet. And then it opened in the UK a month later, two months later, et cetera, et cetera, and went around the world. Well, what happens because of internet piracy, suddenly these movies were available all around the world before the studios could even release them. So that became uh, the driver for the worldwide release window, which initially started with big tentpole movies and then kind of grew to everything. The other reason for that became that the marketing budgets behind launching movies became so massive. And because of internet social and, and other commentary, it became sort of common sense to say, well, let's let's ride this wave all at the same time. We're going to spend $150 million promoting the thing. Let's make sure if somebody's reading the New York Times in Singapore, the movie's available for them to go see. So that was it. But the other thing that's happened, I think, is that the subscription, the SVOD business has become such a big business through Hulu, through Amazon Prime, through Netflix and others that the common wisdom now is to say, get the most bang for your buck when you've got the product out there. And I think probably the single biggest indicator of that is binge watching, you know, where Hulu and Netflix started the concept of releasing all, all episodes at once. And so I think the window concept largely has disappeared already. I think we'll continue to see it disappear And even with Netflix made for direct-to-Netflix movies, you're seeing releases where they're putting it up on Netflix and also releasing it theatrically at the same time, which sounds a bit bizarre. And frankly, I haven't paid enough attention to know how successful those have been. But I think the windowing era is largely over at this point. I agree. We've talked a lot about the premium subscription video on demand services like Netflix and Hulu. Curious to get your thoughts about the short-form subscription video platforms that are popping up, things like Go90 and Fullscreen and Vessel. Well, clearly there's been a lot of uh, struggle and challenge with most of those. The only ones that, from my point of view and and relative to my knowledge, that have been successful are the ones that have really driven into a hardcore niche. Crunchyroll being a perfect example. Phenomenal example. So another one, interestingly enough, that I 
I went to Korea and was speaking on a panel with the guy was drama thief, which I was fascinated to find out that their biggest audience was actually not because it's Korean dramas primarily. It was not actually Koreans who lived outside of Korea. It was actually 80% of their audience was people that just wanted to watch Korean dramas from all over the world. But I think, I can't remember, Viacom bought them. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Brothers, Brothers, Brothers. I think the niche play among SVOD is an interesting one. I do question how wide that can go. There's certain categories Uh, When I used to be in the music business, I used to do all the Metallica's videos. And I would say, like, you know, Metallica can show up or the Grateful Dead or bands that have those passionate followings. I mean, they're always going to get X number of fans no matter what, no matter what the record release is or anything else. And I think there are things like anime, et cetera, that fall into that category. You know, I wonder about stuff that goes out there that is, well, I think we've already seen the failure of Vessel. They're wide and broad and hard to get your arms wrapped around. And, you know, do people really care that they can see things? Are there enough people that care they can see things two days or three days early? Again, um, we're seeing the windows collapsing, right? People don't yeah, care about that. Don't care. They're so, not pay for it. And we live in a world now where there's so much content, albeit with a very, very different viewership modality because you know the other thing I, I say to people all the time is that when I was a kid which was a long time ago you know I could only watch television when I was home from school you know the the seismic shift of video consumption on mobile devices and being able to watch I just read this morning that Facebook just launched a new high school oriented offshoot of Facebook and I forget the name of it I just literally read it this morning And everything that you put up there is video-based. Everything. There is no photo or text-based stuff. It's all video-based. It's funny. When a company called Moby TV launched many, many years ago, and they're still alive to this day, they had a great commercial. You can see it on YouTube. It's worth watching. It was a guy. It was a great commercial. It's a guy uh, comes out of his apartment, and and he's carrying his television set. And he sits at the bus stop and he's got a long extension cord from his apartment to the bus stop. And he gets on the bus and then the cord follows him and he gets out of work and he goes to his cube and he's dragging this massive long extension cord and carrying his TV the whole way. And he sits down in his cube and the guy at the next cube, I may have it a little wrong, the guy at the cube is like watching Moby TV on his phone. And the, the tagline is like, you know, don't, don't, you don't have to carry your TV with you anymore or whatever. And, and so the concept of people being able to consume video 24 hours a day uh, in any setting around the world. I mean, I just was in India a few weeks ago, and the Indian government is shooting to have 4G available across India within the next three to five years maximum. And they're anticipating there will be 500 million video-enabled smartphones in India at that time. So about in three to five years, 500 million video-enabled 4G smartphones just in India, okay? So the viewership numbers become ridiculous. They're hard to fathom. And then you get into the content question of, is it going to be a short-form world or a long-form world? My answer, frankly, is both. I think there's certainly going to be massive consumption of snack-based and snack-oriented content, and that's what we really focus in on at the queue. And that's why we're doing it, because we look at short form content and where there were X number of feature films launched on an annual basis and X number of TV shows launched on an annual basis several decades ago. Now, the amount of content that's out there because of the YouTube, Facebook global revolution of of the creation of this stuff, it's literally impossible not only to watch it all, but it's impossible to curate it all. And so, you know, we built this company to be a curation engine as much as anything and try to say, okay, we're going to find the cool stuff for you as much as we can and let you, you know, glom onto what we're doing and also share with other people and and, and sort of drive off of that social fabric of I like James taste, so I'm going to watch what you are recommending. And so I think the short form content evolution, if you will, is well entrenched and isn't going to go away. It's interesting because when I started Cinema Now in 99, and I was arguing with people that were saying that Atom Films and iFilm, et cetera, were going to be the next big thing, I said, you're wrong because short films have never been a real business. Shorts have always been a tiny adjunct business to watching features and half-hour and hour-long programs. I've completely... And you were right at the time. Yeah, at the time I was right. At the time I was right. I've completely flipped on that now. And actually... I think my personal belief is, is that no one has yet cracked the code on a truly compelling uh, five minute to seven minute or three to seven minute, I'll call it must see TV type thing. 
Like even when I look at, you know, Stranger Things, the new series on Netflix, that's awesome. I loved it, but it's eight one hour shows. You look at Orange is the New Black on Netflix. Netflix has not had a series that's delivered to its customer base that's snack based entertainment, nor is Hulu, nor has Amazon Prime. Everybody's still kind of stuck in this format thing like a book. You know, who says a who says a book has to be, you know, 400 pages to be a novel? You have novels that are 180 pages. You have novels that are 130 pages. You have novels that are 2,000 pages. And there's no time thing now. So what's interesting to me is that there have been little burps and bubbles. And, of course, you can look at YouTube and say vloggers or this short-form series got lots of views or, you know, PewDiePie or whatever. But I'm talking about high-quality, A-plus, you know, with friggin' Tom Cruise in it or Robert Downey Jr. or Matthew McConaughey. And it's a five-minute show. And they post it every day at noon for a week. And by the end of that week, you've got all five episodes. And at noon, you watch everybody in your office and they're picking up their phones because they got to see what the next episode of, of whatever is. That's going to happen. That will absolutely positively happen. I think it's going to happen in the next two to five years for sure. So what takes us so long to, to realize that? Because you're right. Netflix and Hulu are still programming content in 30-minute or hour-long episodes. We've got people releasing music still on albums, even though most music is bought as singles. Why do we kind of stick to these formats from the traditional media and entertainment world? Well, I think, you know, you've got massive inertia from the people who are entrenched in the filmmaking business. You know, Steven Spielberg, I mean, he's still a a viable filmmaker. You know, you see Ron Howard and he he partnered with uh, Brian Grazer. They're trying to do some short form stuff. It's like if I'm a Broadway director, I know how to do Broadway plays. I kind of don't do short form experimental theater. So you've got that as a factor, I think. And so it's got to be done by the new filmmakers. Even when you go to the, you know, David Fincher's and Michael Bay's, they're still, they're my age. They're still too old. So it's it's a new generation of filmmakers. That's one thing. Biggest thing is that who's going to take the chance on the financial model? And what's interesting is Go90, from what I understand, it's you know it's not doing any real business. People don't know about it. I mean, what's interesting is that Mike, I have I have five kids from age eight to twenty-four. I don't think one of them knows what Go90 is. I really truly don't. I don't think they have any clue. My son probably does because he's in, in he's a business major, and so he kind of studies this stuff. But but my other kids, my four daughters from from eight to, to twenty-four. I don't think any of them would have any idea what Go90 is. I don't think any of them would have any idea what Vessel is. They know what Musical.ly is. They know what Instagram is. They know what Spotify is. And so I think when you see Spotify getting into video, I think you see some of the stuff that's happening around uh, Instagram and Snapchat. I think those are going to be interesting platforms to be the ones that might break short form video. Spotify just released a documentary series on Metallica. I just watched the first episode. It was awesome. And I, I mean, I know these guys really well and I enjoyed watching it. It was an eight minute long thing. I want to watch the rest of them. And so I think you're going to see some of these new distribution platforms be the ones that will crack short form premium content distribution. You mentioned Musical.ly, which has been very buzzed about recently. What yeah. are your thoughts on Musical.ly service? I can't, I can't escape Musical.ly. Musically is a phenomenon I've experienced personally because I have an eight and 10 year old daughter. That's all they ever do. But I think we'll never, we will never get away from kind of the phenomenon of hits driven. It's like Pokemon. You know, we're never going to get away from a world that doesn't have hits driven phenomenons that occur around content. I don't see that going away. It's kind of human nature for that buzz to happen. It happens differently now and at a scale that's never been experienced because of the way things travel. But for me, those aren't business models. You can't create a business model. I mean, Musical.ly has its own business model and now they have Lively or whatever it is. But that's a that's a very specific thing. I think what's going to be interesting is, and to go back to a question you asked earlier, I think what's what hasn't caught up yet to the change of short-form content is the world of advertising as well. And one of the most shocking things to me about the mobile content space is the lack of advertising that's present there. And everybody forgets that when we first watched videos on our computers, whether it was YouTube or even on an MSN when they were putting up short-form videos, there were no there were no pre-rolls, there were no ads around that. You just watched the video because the ad, the advertisers hasn't hadn't figured out what to even do there. So I think one of the breakthroughs that will occur that I wish I had the idea because if I did, I'd leave here right after this interview and start the business is uh, the companies that come up with interesting ways to monetize advertising in the mobile video space 
those will be huge winners in the future going forward. Those will be the, you know, maybe it'll be Google, but those will be the companies that will have multi-billion dollar valuations that figure out something that when we see it, we'll go like, ah, that's so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Or why didn't I do that? But, you know, I always say when Google started, nobody was looking for another search engine. There were plenty of search engines then. But that one line, none of those search engines just had a thing that came up that was one line and you typed it in that worked really fast and faster than all the rest of them and more accurately than all the rest of them. Somebody's going to do that in the mobile advertising space and that business is going to go crazy. Let's talk a little bit more about your time at Lionsgate. You mentioned it briefly earlier, but when you were president of digital, I had a very successful tenure, right? Uh, Lionsgate digital revenues grew at 74% year over year, which was twice the industry average at the time. So what was your focus when you were at Lionsgate and what did you see kind of evolve during that period? Well, I think, you know, Lionsgate historically is a company that is willing to take risks. They're so big now, it's probably less true now than it was then because they really are a major studio at this point. But John Feldheimer and Michael Burns uh, are both entrepreneurial type guys. I mean, Michael's had many, many ventures that he's been involved with around the web. Everything from he was one of the guys who started a company called Hollywood Stock Exchange uh, through a, a whole bunch of other businesses. And I think part of what it was is what it was very important to Lionsgate at that time. I think it still is, but more so at that time to be a leader and, you know, Wall Street, if they couldn't have the grosses, if they didn't have the pre-Hunger Games, if they didn't have the, you know, Harry Potters or, or, or Batman or whatever for their studio, one way they could impress investors on Wall Street was by kind of being, you know, thinking forward into the future of what was happening. So I think a lot of that was, was the ability to get things to happen that might not have been able to happen at, a, at another studio. I was there during what I would consider to be a challenged period at Lionsgate. There was a big corporate raider named Carl Icahn who was trying to take over the company uh, for much of the time that I was there. And so that created a lot of challenges for management and certain risks that I would have liked to have taken couldn't be taken. I also think, you know, sometimes to a fault, I'm a little bit ahead of my time. Uh, I did a co-production with Machinima while I was there. I actually launched a short form animated series on Hulu. I think it's still on there as we speak called Trailer Trash, which was a very edgy sort of South Park, even edgier than South Park series that uh, was one of the first original series that Hulu ever ordered. Again, everybody thought I was kind of crazy at that time. Why would I do a, a series, original series with Machinima? Why would we put something on Hulu of short form content? But it was, a, it was a great experience. And a lot of my experience at Lionsgate was literally trying new things. And a lot of it was really, frankly, just distribution deals, even with Netflix at that time. I mean, the, the scope of Netflix licensing deals when I entered in 2008 and left four years later was a mag, you know, it was, it was logarithmically larger than it was when I had started. So Netflix had just started to pay money for shows when I got there. And by the time I left, they were, they were well entrenched in the business. You also oversaw a Lionsgate investment in Break.com, which became part of Defy Media. So what got you interested in working with the Break guys? Well, actually, it's interesting because I didn't, you know, I did and I didn't do that. I, I actually had a tremendous amount of, in fact, actually the first big deal that I wanted to try to do was to have Lionsgate buy all of Break.com. And there was a market crash in fall of 2008. And that was actually the event that stopped that deal from happening. And so Keith Richmond, who founded Break, you know, I mean, we were right. We were practically standing at the altar when that blew up. It was a bad day. And so Break went off to continue to, to build itself on its own. And, you know, Keith's done a phenomenal job with Break and, and now with Defy. You know, he was ahead of his time in terms of what he was doing. I can't remember. I'm, I've forgotten actually now what Break was originally called when he bought it. Uh, but it was the early 2000s. I want to say man-made or something, but I don't think that was it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But I think Break and Defy today has kind of found itself in a in a bit of a... They've kind of zigged a little bit when some of the MCN stuff... I don't really consider them an MCN. I consider them more of a content creator and distributor. I think they're positioned well now to... Uh, take advantage of what's happening about all the stuff that we've been talking about. But I was actually never able to do any, what I wanted to do with break, which was really uh, their audience, particularly then. And I still believe now is very much male oriented, young males, mm -hmm. young males. 
And that was very much the kind of content at that time that Lionsgate was making. Uh, there were a number of things I was trying to do then. I, I actually was trying to work with Xbox in, in a variety of ways to try to get a deal done with Xbox and Lionsgate to create a network for Xbox, similar to what they finally started on their own and then could never get off the ground. But it was interesting. One year, we had a film while I was at Lionsgate called Gamer with Gerard Butler and Michael C. Hall and from Dexter fame. And uh, the movie did, I think, as I recall, about $20 million at the box office. Well, that year, it was the highest grossing pay-per-view movie on the Xbox. And it was like I said, look, see, if you make content for your guys who are on their Xbox and their thumbs get tired, at some point, they want to kick back and watch something. And let's do a content offering on a subscription basis that targets the male gamer audience on Xbox and launch it through their Xbox Gold platform that they had back then. But... That one never saw the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess just to wrap things up on the Break.com thread, Break merged with Alloy Digital to form Defy Media. You're right, plays in the MCN space lightly, representing creators and doing things with talent, but for the most part, focused on building owned and operated brands and creating yep. IP, right? They've got the Smosh uh, franchise, which they developed into a motion picture and, and do a yep. lot of work with. They also have the Clever brand, which is kind of oriented actually towards young females and trying to expand into a different yep. demo. And then they have things like Honest Trailers and uh, the Screen Junkies format, which has been wildly successful. Yep. So I think Lionsgate is still a part owner in Defy, but the suitor that's been looking at them most recently is Viacom. Do you think Viacom is going to go through and make that purchase, as a lot of people have rumored? Um, my honest answer is I don't know, and I would say that would become even more clouded by the recent events of the management change at Viacom with uh, Domon exiting stage left very recently due to the wonderful work of Sumner Redstone and his family. So whether Viacom continues down that path, I'm not sure. I know Viacom is very active on a global basis in terms of what they're doing around shorter form content. And I mean, look, Viacom made a play for YouTube and then MySpace at one time. So they were doing this a long time ago. But yeah, I'm not even sure exactly what exactly Lionsgate's ownership stake is in Defy. I know it's still substantial, but I think I think Defy in general, like many of these companies, will probably be swept up by a large media company at some point in the near future. So let's shift gears and let's talk more about the queue. How did you meet your co-founder, Scott Ehrlich? I met Scott probably around the time I started Cinema Now in 99-2000. He, he originally went to Seattle. He was at News Corp launching news services and then uh, their digital group. Uh, then he went to a company that News Corp had an ownership stake in or maybe owned called Rivals, and which brought him to Seattle. And he ultimately went to Real Networks and was running their SuperPass business, which today we would call an SVOD service. So that we met somewhere in that era and we knew each other for many, many years. So we've known each other for over 15 years now. And we literally were at lunch about three years ago. Uh, bemoaning the fact that the, because we're both startup type guys and bemoaning the fact that none of the stuff that we were working on was actually doing as well as we wanted it to be doing in terms of getting financed, et cetera. Scott had done a series that was one of the seminal high-end series in short form called the LXD, the League of Extraordinary Dancers, with a big Hollywood, now big Hollywood director named John Chu, who directed the bunch of the Step Up movies and then later the G.I. Joe movies. He just actually directed the part two of the Lionsgate series about the magicians. Now you're seeing me. But at any rate, right, they had done the LXD. I had tried to bring the LXD into Lionsgate. He ultimately sold it to Paramount. So we were at lunch talking about various things. And it got into a whole conversation about short-form content and the explosiveness of short-form content. He knew about my background at MTV. And so it started as a discussion about, can we take the cue and create a channel for a next generation of kids that's just like 80s MTV, except we curate the best of premium YouTube content and our VJ or hosts or YouTube personalities instead of former disc jockeys like MTV had in the 80s. That was the start of the conversation. It's grown into what we do now, which is basically we curate premium short form content from all around the world. We license that content. So like we scrape it off YouTube. We go to the original creators and license it because YouTube doesn't own anything. They just, they're just the platform. And then we package it. We package it in all sorts of different ways. We package it for airlines, for restaurant chains, for broadcast groups. We do shows with it. We do linear channels with it. So basically... 
we're taking individual short form clips and packaging it in a way that you can actually sell it to someone and and have them buy it in, in for the most part, more traditionally oriented uh, media forms. I was going to say you're blending the digital and the traditional worlds uh, very nicely. Well, I'm still a big believer that, you know, people like to talk about how television is dead and nobody watches television, etc. It's not really true. The data doesn't really support that. It's really more that more videos watched more than ever before because of all the different devices. And as I always say, is that young kids still watch television; they just don't watch it on television. And but it's still television. I mean, you know, again, Stranger Things, the Netflix series, it's television. It just might get watched on a phone or a, or an iPad. What we felt is that you know the home video business got changed dramatically through the ways of delivery, etc. But the home video business at its peak is about a $25 billion a year annual business. The global television business is a $250 to $300 billion industry. And in many places, it's still growing. Traditional television is still growing. So we looked out at that and we said, okay, all of those people are trying to figure out how to get short form content as part of their offerings, whether it's just on a mobile basis. I mean, there's some territories where we launch literally just on mobile phones. And so we said, what we really want to do is create a company that packages that content because they don't necessarily want to just get, you know, a thousand random three minute clips from a, either a full screen or a maker or, or YouTube or the creators. They're not set up to do that. So what we're going to do is, and we're not going to do it through just, although we use algorithmic and other methods to find stuff. We're not going to do it through sort of machine-based curation. We're going to actually use human curation and produce shows that that have, you know, some sort of beginning, middle, and an end that you can package and sell to these people. So that's what we're doing now. It is old school meets new school. What are you most excited about this year? Probably the most exciting thing that I can't talk about right now is that we never really targeted the U.S. market for a variety of reasons. And we're working on a project now that hopefully is going to have us launching something really exciting in the U.S. before the end of the year. And so I think that's probably got everybody in the office fired up right now. And it also is going to provide an opportunity for us to get a lot more exposure in mainstream media for a lot of the creators that are out there. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Look forward to that. Let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What books have you read recently that you really enjoyed? Uh, I hardly read books anymore, I'm ashamed to say. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's a, a biography on Elvis Presley. I love to read biographies about people. I, think, I want to say it's called Careless Whisper, but I don't... Uh, Sounds more like a, a George Michael. Exactly. I know that's the George <laughs> Michael song, so maybe I was karaoke singing that recently. Um, <laughs> it, it was a biography on Elvis. I'm okay. a big Elvis fan. Uh, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what would they be? Much more advertising revenue running against short-form content. What I talked about earlier is a, is a real high-profile series being created by someone that's really based for mobile and non-television consumption. I think some significant shifting and changing and consolidation in the MCN space. I think what grew to what we knew as the MCN space has kind of seen its day and it's going to shift and change significantly over the next five years. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Do you think that's going to come as a result of competitive pressures or more M&A activity? What is going to cause additional consolidation in the MCN space? I think they were able to take an advantage advantage of a window in time when consolidation of individual YouTube channels was something that was important. I think those businesses, that, that was fine for a small business and helped it grow quickly. I think ultimately the bigger ones are going to have to get into higher value consumption. And you can't manage 65,000 clients, whether you're an agency or even if you do it you know, electronically for the most part. And so I think they've been going further and further in the direction of really focusing on their main, you know, the smoshes, et cetera, et cetera. I think interestingly, like we were talking about Defy and Break, I think they kind of, they've already kind of jumped the shark and are in the next gen of what I think MCNs are going to be doing. It's fascinating because I just did a four-part series on the podcast about the history of MCNs. Oh, did so you? I talk about precursors like Next New Networks and Revision 3, which was acquired yeah, by Discovery. I, uh, yeah. And then the MCN, I know them well. The MCN, what I call the MCN 1.0 phase, which is really that initial Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, full screen, a lot of which started as funded channels and went after signing up as many creators as they could, right? It was a land grab. It was, it was arbitrage, right? It's the initial way that you build a network in an emerging market is you go after people in the market, the spreader, you take a rev share off the difference. But what shifted significantly around 2012 
was the dawn of what I call MCN 2.0, which was increasing verticalization yeah. of networks and a much more international global expansion plan. But I would argue that we have now entered in 2016 MCN 3.0, which is you're no longer going to see scale networks in the same way that you did before. There's much more of an emphasis on multi-platform capability and creating content that has multiple rev streams. And a big part of that is SVOD. It's interesting. An anecdote that you wouldn't know is when I one of the first things I did at Lionsgate, the first meetings that I had was with two young guys named Ezra Cooperstein and Danny Zappen, and they had a company called The Station Group. And they were had a business plan to turn it into a thing called Maker Studios. And I loved it. And I liked the valuation. I liked the business. I liked what their ideas were. I, sh- I pushed it all through Lionsgate and ultimately got shut down on making a million-dollar investment. Oh, no. Uh, because I, certain people there thought I was crazy. The rest is history. There we go. <laughs> yeah, probably shortly after that, they, they raised $1.5 million, created Maker Studios. Ezra ended up leaving, going full screen. I know. Yeah, I know Ezra well. And obviously, you're firmly invested and focused on the queue today. But if you were to start a business in the online video space now, what would you do? Certainly anything that I would do now would be completely focused on mobile consumption. And when I say mobile consumption, I mean literally mobile consumption as in as in smartphones. We're a global company. We travel all over the world. If there's one thing that boggles my mind on a daily basis, it's the amount of video, not only that I watch personally, but the amount of video that's consumed on smartphones. I mean, I have an I have a iPhone 6, the small version. I'll get the S when I get whatever the next version is, um, just because I watch so much video on it. But I literally, you know, I probably should admit this, I'll get arrested, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm driving home and I'll stop at a stoplight and, you know, watch video while I'm sitting there at the stoplight on my phone. So whatever I would do going forward would, would be oriented towards mobile video consumption. And where can people find out more about you and more about the queue? More about me? Well, I guess you just Google me, but even though I know I have to update my LinkedIn, my Wikipedia, all sorts of things that I don't keep up on. Uh, I'm not looking for a job right now, so that's why. <laughs> the queue is, is you can either go to qyoutv.com or theqyou.com. It's pretty self-evident what we're doing. There's a video that to, to watch that you can see what we're up to, but I would also expect that you'll see significant development in our business and our business model uh, going into 2017. Awesome. Really excited to see that. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for being on the show. This was My pleasure, James. Covered a lot of ground. This was awesome. <laughs> really excited for it. And thanks again. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.